This audio is from King's Cross Church in Independence, Missouri. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit kingscrosskc.com. To be with you this morning, you look particularly red this morning. Um, it's good to know that you're, you're doing your part for this, this evening's festivities in Kansas City. Um, Hey, welcome to King's Cross. I'm Orion Barrage. I'm one of the pastors here, and we um, have been going through the book of John. And um, as we've gone through the book of John together, we've uh, got to witness all of these beautiful encounters um, that Jesus has had along uh, his journey and his ministry. And each week, as, as, as Jesus encounters a new group of people, and, and there's uh, conflict, and there's miracles, and all these things that are sort of happening that sort of bring out who Christ is in new and fresh ways to us. And so um, that's sort of been our experience as we've gone. We're in John chapter 8 this morning, and, and this week is, is just different. It's a, it's a different sermon, and um, uh, so I, I'll actually teach quite a bit this morning, and, um, and then I'll preach a little bit. So if you're not like a super big fan of teaching, I'll get to some preaching this morning. Um, but I didn't have our scripture reader, which is normal part of our liturgy, come and read this passage this morning because we're treating it differently. And uh, so I'm going to read a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit more um, about what's going on this morning, and you'll see right away. Um, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, it's John chapter 8. Um, we're actually starting in 753, but uh, and then 8-1. It says this, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down, and he wrote on the ground... But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We love this story. Right? Like, there's probably not another story in Scripture that, um, that really, like, satisfies the appetite of society. Outside of the church, outside of people who love the Bible, people love this story. They love it. And it's a great story. I mean, it is a, it is a wonderful story. People love it. Now, I think part of the reason that, that we like it so much, if we're honest enough, is because somebody gets away with something, right? Like, we walk around knowing that we are sinful. Um, and, and, and in this story, somebody who is caught, who is sort of in trouble, right? 
they get off. So, so, we, so we love it maybe from a Christian point of view because it seems very grace-filled. But, but I think the world just loves it because it's like, man, it'd be great if I didn't have to pay the consequences of the bad things that I do. So, so the world loves it. Um, the world loves this, this. In fact, we, 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 can, we can see that um, in pop culture and things like that. Now, if you were reading your Bible with me, um, I don't know if the screen behind me had this, but if, you're, if your Bible is anything like mine, you saw something in that bracket that said the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Okay, so if you're in a more modern version, it's right there in brackets, or it's a footnote. Now, if you're in an older version like King James, it probably doesn't mention that at all. So... That's, that's something that we're dealing with this morning. That's something that we're, we're looking at. My brackets say the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. All right? So for that reason, um, most New Testament scholars do not think it was part of the Gospel of John when John wrote this Gospel. Okay? The phrase that we use to describe that, I love to call it Johannian. It's non-Johannian. It's probably really Johannine, but Johannian sounds better, so I might use those interchangeably. Um, uh, it is added centuries later to this text. And here's some scholarly views on that, okay? These are, these are people that we've used to construct our sermons for the last several months. Don Carson, specifically in the Gospel According to John, who's a New Testament scholar, says this. Despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's Gospel, the evidence is against them. The modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. When he says them, he says, despite their best efforts, like them, I was one of them, right? So for years, I was like one of them. I wanted to fight for this text because I loved the text. I wanted it to stay here. I wanted it to be authoritative. I wanted to see it as God's inspired word. I wanted, I wanted this little, this story to stay in there. And, um, and, and I just couldn't get there. We'll talk more about that. But Carson agrees with others like Bruce Metzger, who says the evidence for the non joe Johannine text, origin of the paragraph of this adulteress is overwhelming. Others say things like this, te the textual evidence makes it impossible for us to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Andreas Kostenberger says this, this represents overwhelming evidence that this section is non-Johannine. And then the final one, the point to understand is this the point, point this evidence points to an unstable tradition that was not originally part of the ecclesiastically accepted text so I came to this conclusion many years ago and um, at least twice before as I've studied this text and all the writings that I, and there is a wealth of information that you could study about this type of thing and I just decided as we went through it again this year to really go back to it and study it again and, and try to put on fresh eyes and, and man I, I just come to the same conclusion when you read the early church fathers when you read the text when you read the scientific evidence it's just not there it's just not there and, um, and so I, I align 
with these theologians that say this was probably not in the original text. So that gives us an opportunity this morning to do a little bit of work together, like to talk about the biblical scientific study called textual criticism. So that gives us a little bit of time to do that this morning. And since this sermon or this series we started to develop, um, I've really had my eye on one thing that I really want you to hear and, and sort of hold on to with me today is this, that um, it's namely the implications of the trustworthiness and the authority of the scriptures. Like I want, uh, that's just something I, I sort of want to hold on to together. So let me just say this as we dive in a little bit deeper. This topic, properly taught and understood, should not erode your trust in the Bible. It should not. In fact, it should strengthen it. It should build it up, your faith that the Bible that we read, that we teach, that we conform our very lives to is in fact delivered to us by God and kept for us over the centuries by him. And so... Let me give you a little bit uh, about why I'm convinced that this passage isn't in there. And uh, if you come to a different conclusion, that's okay. Um, many bright scholars do. And so let me give you why I'm, I'm sort of convinced. Here's, here's five reasons. First, this section in, in this chapter, this section or this story is absent from all the early Greek manuscripts before the 5th century before the 5th century. So we keep finding manuscripts that are older and older and older, right? Like we just, we keep digging things up and we fi keep finding manuscripts. And as we have found older and older and older manuscripts, before the 5th century, not a manuscript has this in it. So that's one. Two, when the story begins, when it begins to appear in manuscripts, and as, as we've looked at the aged manuscripts, it's not consistent where you find it. So sometimes it appears in chapter 7, verse 36, sometimes in 744, sometimes there's one that's like in Luke 21, and so it just, it doesn't show up in the same place in some of these manuscripts. So if, if in, at some point it showed up in these manuscripts and they were all in the same place, this place, then I'd be like, okay, there's something to that. But the fact that it's just dropped in all these different places over the years sort of lends me to have to look at that differently. Number three, if you remove the passage, so uh, Pastor Will next week will, could be talking about this, is like, if you just take 753 and 811, you just pulled it out and you seamed the text back up, it's... It's sort of perfect. When you look at it that way, it's like you feel the intrusion of the story into the feast narrative. So that's, that's a powerful motivator that I cannot take lightly. Number four, maybe the most significant, is the vocabulary and the literary style of this story is divergent from John's voice. So he uses phrases and he writes in a way that's just not consistent. There's a very big break in if you study those two things, the vocabulary and the literary style. There's more on that later. And then finally, early church fathers omit this passage in their commentaries on John. The early church fathers, like, we're not going to include it. In fact, it, yeah, a little bit of church history, you have, the, you have the Eastern church and the Western church sort of beginning to, like, 
form apart without much communication together. The Eastern Church didn't know this existed. This passage even existed until the 10th century. So so they they didn't even know about it. And so for those reasons and more... um, I agree with I agree with that. You know, that the New Testament, that part of your Bible that's a third of the back of your Bible, um, that's the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that was originally written in Greek. And in 1516, Erasmus printed the first Bible and sort of turned the world upside down. It changed things. That's an amazing story on its own, but. We don't have time for that, but in 1516, that's when the first printed version comes around, right? So for 1,500 years, the Bible was copied by hand and handed down generation by generation by people who just wrote it down, like studiously wrote that down. We call those early versions manuscripts. That's what we call them. For a long time, I thought, man... Lord, it would be so much easier if we had the originals, you know, like why not put them on golden tablets and let us find them? Like, you know, that seems like a better idea. Um, a little dig there. Um, man, I, I struggled with that. Sometimes I do struggle with that. That's just super prideful. Um, but I, but I'm like, God, why didn't you do it this way? You know, but I was watching one time this, uh, movie on the crusades and I was watching this, the terrible stuff that the church did to try to capture holy relics, like the terrible dark stuff that, that happened for centuries. And I thought, what would we do? What wars would we have fought for the original copy of John? For the original copy of a letter that Paul penned in prison waiting for execution to the church he planted, what would we do for that copy? We'd go to war over that copy. And then you, so, then you see God's plan. Then you see, okay, God's ways are not our ways. And there's like a purpose even for the way that he did it. There's four sort of kinds of, of manuscripts that we find. Um, I won't go into them, but there's, there's, there's four basic kinds. Um, some of them are like little pieces of papyrus. Some of them are full manuscripts. Some of them are lectionaries that were writ, read uh, in public worship. Um, and so when you take all of those early copies and you put them together... We have this amazing abundance of manuscripts of the New Testament, especially compared to other manuscripts of ancient works. Let me give you an idea of comparison for that. There are 10 manuscripts that exist of Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, written about 50 B.C., and all of these date from the 10th century or later. There are 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history written roughly during the time of Jesus was alive. Only two manuscripts exist of Tactus's histories and annals, which were composed around AD 100, and one from the 9th century and one from the 11th century. That's the earliest we have. And there are 200 manuscripts of Pliny the Elder's natural history written in the first century, and those manuscripts date from the 15th century. So when we look at ancient, like, 
books and things like that, there's very few manuscripts and they're not that old. When we compare those numbers with manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, the, the, these numbers are from the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Munster, Germany, which is the authoritative sort of collection site in the world. You ready? Here they are. There are 322 unsealed texts. There's 2,907 minuscule texts. There's 2,400 lectionary portions. There's 127 papyri, which is 5,801 manuscripts, early manuscripts of the New Testament alone. These are handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament in Greek preserved in libraries around the world and now held digitally. If you add to that 18,000 more texts, more manuscripts that were translated into other languages in the same time frame, we have about 24,000 texts that we pull from just to be able to compare one against another and go, was that in there? Like, what's the original look like? So, so that's pretty powerful. That's the idea of um, textual criticism. No ancient book has anything close to that. And no one is wondering if Julius Caesar's book is like the original. They just accept it as fact. They just accept it as fact. Now, John Piper says, um, with that wealth creates more problems and solutions at the same time. These copies do not all agree on what the wording was in the original manuscripts. So the more manuscripts that you have, the more variations you will find. On the other hand, the more manuscripts you have, the more control you have over which readings are the original ones. The more manuscripts you have, the more variations you find. And yet, the more they tend to be self-correcting. So if you only had two manuscripts of John, and we just compared one to the other, we would not know if John 8, 1 is in there. Like, we just wouldn't know. But if you had two that didn't have John 8 in there, and one that did, you'd start to lean towards the second, that, that it wasn't in there, right? Like, that's just human deduction and reasoning. But if you had hundreds or thousands that over many centuries and over geographical expanses in the world confirmed over and over and over again which small variations in scripture are, should be there and should not be there. That's textual criticism. That's what the science is of it. And F.F. Um, F. Bruce put it this way, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is in truth remarkably small, remarkably small. So that is textual criticism in a, in, in, um, a snapshot. Now, here's the great thing. Here's like one of the things that I really want you to hear and, and take away from this. There is no doctrine or theology in any of these variations that is approached or changed or there's, there's no threat to any doctrine of Christianity or any, any theology. There's just not. It's, it, they're small in nature. There's stories like this. They're, and so if, if one exists, a variant, um, there's no threat to our faith in that. There's no threat at all. 
And so that makes you wrestle with how do we deal with this as Christians, right? How do, how do we deal with this passage? Do I, do I read this when I'm reading my Bible? Um, do I skip over it? Should, is the, you know, should I be weary of anything in it? Like, should I preach it? You know, I was like, really, honestly, I, I probably was undecided until a couple weeks ago of like, am I going to preach the text or not? Um, largely depended on what time it was once I got past that last part. But, um, but like, how do we treat it? Should I preach it? If so, how do I preach it? Right? How do we want to deal with stuff like this? Uh, especially because I know like it, it's precious, you know, it's a precious story to us. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you have to look at those things. You have to look at them and you have to decide, um, what's it say? Like what, is it that valuable? Does it add? Does it take away? Is it the same thing? Like what, what is it? And when I look at this passage, the thing that I see is I see this passage is not authoritative, so I won't preach it to you authoritatively, but I actually believe it did happen. You're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> like what? I believe it happened. I believe this passage happened. I really do. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that that I, I'm not going to go into, but like this is the true Jesus. And he's doing something in this passage that's super important that we need to look at today. And I'm not going to preach it authoritatively because of our view on what Bible-centered means, you know. So, so we're going to use other scripture and, uh, you know, the, the things that we, we definitively know is completely in the original to sort of look back and go, this story points to the true Jesus and the true gospel. And so, therefore, there's, there's things for us to see here and love here. If I can preach an illustration from my own life, I can preach a story that came up in the, and I think it happened. I actually do believe that this happened and, and, and it was sort of passed down orally and it wasn't part of John's thing. And that along sometime they were like, this happened. No one, none of the gospel writers got it in there. Like, what do we do? It's such a great story. They're like, just throw it in there. Eight chapter looks good. <laughs> but we found out. God's made a way through his divine providence and through his wisdom. He, we found out that it wasn't in there because he, he, the way that he has led his church through his holy word and the wisdom and the common grace that he has given brilliant men and women over the years, we found out it wasn't in there. Just like that one verse back in chapter 5. We knew that it wasn't in there. So I approach it differently. I do not give it authority. I did not have somebody read it to where you would respond. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We didn't do that. We approached it differently. And so I want to look at it this morning, though. I'm going to preach just a little part of it to you this morning before we wrap up our time. Let's look at it. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees. Now, there you go. John never uses that phrase. It's not John's. He doesn't use that phrase. He uses other phrases to talk about the Pharisees. He doesn't use that one. They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? So they're trying to catch him. The woman caught in adultery, she's brought to Jesus in verses 4 and 5, the scribes and the Pharisees are putting Jesus to the test. We've seen this before in the Gospels, have we not? Like, this, like that's, that sounds like something that we've read before, right? It happens all the time, actually. It rings of the truth. Here's what they say. Teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery. Now, in the law, we should stone her. 
What do you say? This is a, just a test for Jesus, right? They're not concerned about the law. They're doing what they always did. They're using it as a way to catch Jesus. Now, the law said, let me read this to you. The law said this in Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20.10, if you, if you want to look those up later. It says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, does it say the woman shall die? Both shall die, it says. But they bring the woman before Jesus. You see that? They, the, the sick little scoundrels that they are, they, 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 they know such a thing as in, in the law, and they bring the woman. They don't, adultery takes two people to commit, right? Like, that's the reality, and they bring the woman before him. They're already perverting the law, already, just to try to catch Jesus. And we see that their concern isn't the law, their concern is catching Jesus, because they're not even following it. There should be a man and a woman before Jesus about to be stoned. They're not committed to the law. It's a trap. It's a way to get Jesus. We see their motives in verse 6. They said, they, this they said to test him. Let him who is without sin, Jesus says, among you be the first to throw at her. He starts writing in the, in the sand. He, he's, he's listening to them, testing him. He doesn't even really approach the law. Like scholarly. I mean, he could have just sort of called him on the carpet there. He's like, listen, you know, where's the guy? Like, why didn't you bring him? Let me repeat the law to you. Let, you know, he, he doesn't even go there. He just, he bends down and he starts writing in the sand. We, the dirt, we don't, we don't know what he writes. And he says that he is without sin, cast the first stone. There's ongoing conversation, and he does it again. Now, Jesus, in saying that, is not trying to rewrite the justice system. This is a terrible verse to try to apply to civic justice, okay? Like, that's just a bad, bad way to do it. Your, your society's going to fall apart in, in seconds if you do it this way. But, but, and so Jesus is, he's not doing that. He's doing something else though. And, and that's what we need to see. The something else that is happening here, Jesus does all the time. He's standing against the Pharisees understanding of the law and God. That's what he does. So again, I see that throughout scripture. I see, so it rings of the real Christ, right? It points to the real Jesus. Listen to some of these passages in the New Testament. In Matthew 9 and 12, Jesus says to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Right? Like he's just sort of challenging. He's sort of like trying to recapitulate the, the law from their um, stubborn religious minds. In John 7, we, we read this. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Right? So we see Jesus. He's doing the same thing. He's taking the law. He's taking their understanding of it. He's taking their, their hard-heartedness and their hard-headedness. He's trying to flip the script to help them see what God's about. That's what he's trying to do. And we see that throughout Scripture. In Galatians 5.14, we see this. The law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So this, this is the gospel as it expands throughout scripture. And we see a piece of it right here this morning. 
Jesus is not just exposing the Pharisees as bad keepers of the law. He is, but he's not just doing that. In moments like this, in so many moments, what Jesus is doing is he is reestablishing righteousness on the foundation of grace. That's what he's doing. Because God's people have been getting that wrong for centuries, and it has led them to pharisaical, hypocritic, you know, religiosity. And so he is reestablishing through all of these opportunities that righteousness and standing with God will have a foundation of grace and not rigidity to the law. That's what he's doing here. And that's wonderful news for us this morning. Where there was no grace and there was no humility in this moment, there was no compassion in this moment, and there was actually no law keeping in this moment. In order to keep the law, Jesus is bending down and he writes on the ground a couple of times to sort of expose that hypocrisy. We all want to know what he wrote. <laughs> you know, we want to know what he wrote. I don't know what he wrote. What I think happened, we pull from the other parts, if this story did occur. What I think happened is he, he bends down and he starts to write in the dirt. And we, our few clues are this. He's talking about those are without sin. And then secondly, the, the second clue we have is that the older men left first. And I'm not an older man, but if I were, um, I would think I would understand this passage to mean I have a lot of sin that has stacked up against my account with God. And if I see my name next to those sins, I'm going to walk away in this moment. So I think that is what happens. The older men were first to walk away because they understood the accumulation of a lifetime of sin means something. As each man, uh, man walked away under the shame of their sins, you can see this. The point of this story is that justice must be grounded on a gracious spirit. And when it isn't, we risk hypocrisy. That's not just the point of this text, but the entire New Testament is that grace is the, is the framework in which God will engage his people, in which his people will engage him. You see that in Jesus' final words to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Which is something he says very similar in John 5. Neither do I condemn you. So it, he's not saying in this passage, I don't condemn you, so go commit adultery. Your sin doesn't matter. He's not saying that. The beautiful thing that Jesus is doing is to this woman, he is reestablishing righteousness in this woman's life through grace from a Savior. That's what he's doing. And he's even doing that with the Pharisees if they would let him. That's what he's doing. And that's what he is always doing when we open this word. 
is that God through his word is reestablishing his grace and his character and his provision of salvation through grace. That's what the gospel is. And that's what this passage point to. He's not saying don't, don't commit adultery anymore, not because you fear stoning. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, because you have met with God and because you have been rescued this morning by grace, you have been saved by grace. And so now you possess the clarity of spirit and the presence of God to sin no more. That's what he's saying here. And the story this morning may not be in John's gospel, but it's the same gospel and the same Jesus that it points to. I love that. I love that even even where we have some of these, we have that pure, true, grace-filled gospel to look at, to savor, to absorb this morning. And so I want you to do that. How do you respond, therefore, to that message this morning? How do you, how do you respond this morning to a text like this, to, to a short, beautiful story and message like this, where God wants to establish with his people grace and his character and his love and his power to help us not sin and fall the way of the world? So how will you respond this morning? Um, how will you respond to take the foundation of grace more into your life? So, so here's some ideas. This week, you can realize this in some way. You, I mean, you can, you can find a moment at work with your children, with friends. You can find a way in the way that you engage culture or TV or news. You can find a way to, to, to stop in that moment and see the writing in the sand and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish this relationship, this next movement, whatever I do next on the foundation of grace. How I treat somebody, how I judge somebody how I make a judgment about somebody, like you can do that. There's a way for you to just absorb this, make the foundation of grace deeper in your life. Actively preach the gospel in some moment. Do that. Do it twice. Do it three times. Do it four times. Do it as many times as you can this week. Another way that you could sort of respond to this message this morning, um, or these messages this morning, because it felt like I just preached two sermons, but like what, the, another way you could do it is you could like take this book, you could take this book and you could do something with it. You could, you could observe all that God did to make this happen, all that men and women have done over centuries, the lives that have been given to bring it to us this morning in a faithful place that we could look at it and read it and know that it's precious. There's something you could do. Read it more. Open it. Maybe start a Bible reading plan. I know people do that in January, but um, it might surprise you that the, that the purpose of a Bible reading plan is actually not to read the Bible in a year. It's to read the Bible. You could start it at any point. You could start it July 4th. Like you could start it at any point. Read the Bible this week. Regularly, regular scripture reading changes people's lives, changes it, changes your life. Um, and so here's what I want to do to get together as I bring communion up before us. Here's what I want to do. If you have a Bible, grab it. If there's one in front of you, we have Bibles all over the room. Grab a Bible. If you, ha if you like apps, phones, just open your app real quick. Whatever. You don't have one within reach. Maybe just do it out of faith. Just hold your hand out, okay? Grab your Bible or phone. Like, hold it up before you. Hold it in your hand with me for one moment. 
Come on, do this. It's, it's, do this. It, hold it in your hand with me for one moment, and I want, you to, I want you to think about the relationship that you have with the Bible. And listen, it really, it doesn't matter to me what that relationship is this morning. I just want you to realize anew what God has done to give you this. I want you to recognize that the true living God who created the world, he created you, he breathed his breath into you and gave you life. That God has given you his full self-disclosure as much as your mind can contain it. He's given you that. Everything that you need for life, for living, for death, for eternity. He's given that to you. He's given it to you. The true God has done that. It's everything that you need. He's transmitted this to you through people of different races, socioeconomic backgrounds, occupations, education, over thousands of years, and it lines up perfectly. It's one story over all of that time and all of those different people. It's an objective, listen to this, it is an objective miracle that that sits in your hand. It's a miracle. And many people who did not know God and were far off when studying just that, they said there has to be a God. That is a miracle. This cannot happen without that. It's an objective miracle that this is accurate and that it is pure. And it's a miracle because God loves his church and because he loves you. And there's so much richness and there's so much that we can find for our lives that we can conform our lives to. So I want you to see that this morning. I want you to, to, to touch and feel that. That when societies move away from the morals and the teachings of the scripture, they consume themselves and they fall apart. But listen, there's always a remnant of God's people. There's always a remnant of God's people who God is leading throughout ages with his word. They don't move off of God's truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It lives on no matter what's happening around us. And so it's trustworthy. It's a true story. It's good news. It's a guide for your life. It's vital. It's a lamp unto your feet. It's bread this morning. It's a fountain of life for you. It is heartbreakingly neglected by us, but it is true. It is authoritative, and it is the holy scriptures. That's what it is. So put your faith in it. Put your faith in the grace of the gracious king who calls all ears to hear and come to him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, settle us this morning, God, by your grace. Would you, would you do that this morning? And whether it's a true story in your word or not, help us to encounter grace. God, I even pray that every encounter of grace we have with you this week would multiply in us and cause us to show grace to others. So God, would you make that happen today? We pray. Amen. You can stand with me.